0: This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Good morning, good afternoon and good evening, everyone, depending on from where in the world you're joining us for this conference. My name is Jane McAdam and I'm the Director of the Andrew and Renata Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Let me begin by paying my respects to the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet, which in my case are the Darramurigal people, and let me extend my acknowledgement to Elders past present and emerging, and of course, any Torres Strait and Aboriginal peoples who are with us today. I'm delighted to welcome you to the 2021 Caldor Centre Conference, which explores mobility in the context of climate change and disasters. Forced migration is one of the biggest global challenges of our time. And as contemporary crises interlock and compound, more people are likely to be trapped or displaced by the impacts of poverty, conflict, pandemics, disasters, and climate change. Widening inequality, discrimination, and limits on movement, especially during the pandemic, have highlighted the challenges of mobility and immobility alike. The Caldor Centre is dedicated to undertaking rigorous research on the most pressing displacement issues in Australia, the Asia-Pacific region, and the world and we seek to contribute to public policy by promoting legal, sustainable, and humane solutions to forced migration. Our research in the area of climate-related movement has been at the forefront of legal debates and policy developments, and we're delighted that this week we can bring so many experts together to discuss these issues further. I would particularly like to acknowledge our premier sponsor for the conference, UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, as well as our sponsor for the opening panel, Slater and Gordon. We thank you for your support for this session and for the conference overall. The impacts of climate change are already prompting people to move. Last year, 31 million people were displaced within their own countries by disasters. That's three times as many people as by conflict. Other people are moving in anticipation of the longer-term impacts of disasters and climate change including through planned relocations to safer areas. Now, most of this movement is internal, that is within countries, but some of it is across borders, often intersecting with other drivers of movement like conflict, as well as exacerbating existing discrimination and marginalisation. As we look towards next month's UN Climate Talks in Glasgow at COP26, Today's panel of experts will discuss what our political leaders, our policy makers and communities in general need to know about human mobility and climate change so as to create meaningful and sustainable solutions. I'd now like to introduce our four panelists this morning. Ambassador Rabab Fatima is Bangladesh's permanent representative to the United Nations. As a career diplomat, she's previously served in various Bangladesh missions, including in Calcutta, Geneva, and Beijing. And she's served with the International Organization for Migration as the Regional Representative for South Asia, and also as the Regional Advisor for South and Southwest Asia, and Regional Advisor for Climate Change and Migration in IOM's Regional Office for Asia and the Pacific. Andrew Harper is the Special Advisor on Climate Action to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR. There he is responsible for providing strategic guidance, oversight and expertise to shape UNHCR's response to the climate emergency. He's previously served in a variety of other roles for UNHCR, including leading and coordinating the international response to the Syrian crisis in Jordan. Frances Namumu is the Ecumenical Animator for the Ecological Stewardship and Climate Justice Program at the Pacific Conference of Churches. Since 2016, most of her work has focused on support to communities relocated in the context of climate change. She has a keen interest in climate justice and disaster management in the context of Pacific resilience. Nicole Shepherdson is policy team leader and senior protection policy officer in the United States State Department Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration. Nicole and her team formulate humanitarian policy for the US on issues affecting refugees, internally displaced persons, stateless persons, and vulnerable migrants. Among her previous roles, she worked on US emergency responses to humanitarian crises in Haiti, Iraq, Lebanon, Liberia, and Libya, including temporary deployments to Jordan and Tunisia. So enormous, an enormous welcome to our panelists. And uh, for the audience, I just wanted to explain what the format of the session will be. We're going to have around 40 minutes of a moderated discussion, followed by 15 minutes of audience Q&A. You are very welcome and encouraged to post your questions through the Q&A function at any time, which you'll find on your screen. So to begin, Andrew, can you explain how climate change is affecting human mobility today? What are the core issues that policymakers, politicians, and the general public need to understand?
1: OK, thanks, Jane. And thanks to the call to Senator for, um, for hosting us today. And, and, and hello to all our friends there. Um, Very relevant question. I've just got back from Mauritania yesterday, where we're looking at exactly this, um, how climate change is is interacting with other key drivers for um, and basically causing disruption of society. And I think what what we're already seeing is that um, 90% of refugees under UNHCR's mandate and 70% of IDPs around the world uh, originating from countries most vulnerable to the climate emergency so it's already it's already happening. Um, There is this interaction uh, and nexus between climate exacerbating underlying grievances and I think that's probably one of the the, the key elements, we need to take into account climate change conflict poverty food insecurity. uh, and displacement are increasingly overlapping, and this is driving more people from their homes. Uh, in search of safety and and security. The the, the ability to attribute the key reason why anyone leaves is increasingly challenging. And this is why it's so important that more research and evidence goes into the discussions. Taking into account um, that mobility, we also need to um, note that most people displaced by disasters remain within their home countries. it's only generally when there's compounding disasters or a lack of capacity to respond to their needs do people start seeking safety across borders uh, and at that point they may need uh, international protection so climate change related disasters cannot and they should not be looked at in isolation as a separate phenomenon their effects whether slow or fast they, they really act as vulnerability multipliers and I, I I like to stress the vulnerability multiplier than, than what people often say is a threat multiplier because people should not be seen as a threat. People do not generally wish to leave if there's any way in which they can stay. So what we need to be looking at is how do we enhance resilience and adaptation before people are forced to go? The The, the question that we always receive is, is the term climate refugee. And like climate refugees have no legal basis. And you know, and my panelists probably know this very well, but I'll I'll say it again: a refugee is defined as somebody who's crossed an international border owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted. This is very legalistic, but it's worth saying, well-founded fear of being persecuted for re- reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership, or of a particular social group or political opinion. That's under the 951 Convention. In some contexts, however, um, including in relation to the 969 organisation African Union Convention and the 984 Cartagena Declaration, where there are events seriously disturbing public order, such as in a disaster situation, there may be an extension of the refugee um, criteria in those contexts. And so they're the elements which we need to take into account. But I will be happy to keep it under three minutes. And so I'll finish now. Over.
0: (laughs) Thanks very much, Andrew. And, and thanks for um, I I really like the way you explained there that it's about it's a Vulnerability multiplier, I think that's a very um, useful way to be thinking about the impacts of climate change on populations. Nicole, if I can turn to you. um, This year, you led the US State Department's input into a report commissioned by President Biden, which was looking at how the US should plan for the impact of climate change on migration and displacement. Uh, And that reports due out imminently. We'd hoped it might be out by now, but to the extent you can, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what, what prompted that report.
2: Thank you, Jane, and thank you very much to the Caldor Center for including me in this discussion. Um, You know, from day one, President Biden has made addressing the climate crisis a top priority for the United States and a core element of U.S. foreign policy. We are taking into account how every bilateral and multilateral engagement we have, every policy decision we make will impact our goal of putting the world on a safer and more sustainable path. So displacement and migration are significantly impacted by climate change and these issues merit serious attention to develop policies and laws that can help prevent and mitigate devastating loss of life and human suffering. Um, On February 4th, President Biden issued an executive order on rebuilding and enhancing programs to resettle refugees and planning for the impact of climate change on migration. And that executive order called for a U.S. interagency report, as you mentioned, on climate change change and its impact on migration, including forced migration, internal displacement, and planned relocation. So the report's development has been a whole-of-government process coordinated by the National Security Council at the White House. The report is divided into four sections, uh, international security implications, protection and resettlement considerations, Foreign assistance and multilateral engagement. My bureau in the State Department, the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration, led an interagency working group on the protection and resettlement considerations that included members of the National Security Council, the State Department, USAID, the Departments of Interior, Homeland Security and NASA, among other agencies. So it was quite a whole of government approach just on the issue of protection and resettlement. Um, and within that effort, we conducted a series of consultations with external stakeholders, some of whom are a part of this conference, which is great, um, including international organization partners, civil society groups, academics, think tanks, and others. So I, um, I, it was a very comprehensive and insightful process that um, meant a lot to, to us in the US government putting this report together.
0: It's, it sounds like an enormous uh, number of organizations and people to coordinate and, and you know, a, a quite a diverse range. And I wondered, you know, you you were tasked to look at the impacts of climate change on um, displacement, including internal displacement, migration and planned relocation. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about, well, you know, what each of these means, but what you had to consider in relation to them, please.
2: Sure. Yes. Yeah. So when we started on this you know, we were embarking with two pieces of knowledge that we had already that were informed by previous work on the intersection of climate change and migration. First, we know that climate change is rarely, if ever, a singular factor in individual's migration decisions, as Andrew mentioned. Um, Most often climate change is one of several reasons why a person is compelled to flee their home or decides to leave voluntarily. And we were looking at both the the forced displacement and voluntary uh, migration. And second, we know, as Andrew mentioned also, that the term climate refugees is problematic because it implies that displacement is a result of climate change as a basis for international protection under the 1951 Refugee Convention and its 67 protocol, which it is not. So um, we wanted to be clear about those things. But one of our first tasks in preparing the report to the president was to define our terminology. Um, And we had to be careful. Um, and what kind of terms we're using. We, we've been using terms like climate related displacement and climate change related migration. Um, we needed to consider both slow onset as well as rapid onset climate events and their impacts on forced and voluntary movement. So, um, you know, as Andrew mentioned, the data is showing us already that the intersection of climate change, conflict, and disasters is accelerating displacement to unprecedented levels, and we should expect this trend to continue. Um, while the vast majority of displacement um, related to climate change is occurring within countries' own borders, there are substantial gaps in the international frameworks, domestic implementation and multilateral operations to protect internally displaced persons. Um, and so we talked about um, how we might improve that. Um, the UN, Secretar- UN Secretary General recently issued a, a report by a high level panel on internal displacement that that discusses the impacts of climate change and emphasizes inclusion of IDPs in development solutions. Um, But the the international community and host governments still have a lot of work to do to strengthen protection of IDPs. Um, In considering cross-border displacement related to climate change, the consultations that the US government conducted with external stakeholders included an important recognition that we need to use the protection frameworks that we have as they may apply. For example, we can apply the refugee convention definition to protect individuals if a government denies or withholds from them relief from the impacts of climate change on the basis of a protected characteristic in ways that might amount to persecution. Or we can use the convention definition, for example, to protect individuals persecuted for their climate activism. We can work with UNHCR to incorporate discussions on climate considerations for third country refugee resettlement And we can encourage states who subscribe to the OAU Refugee Convention, as Andrew mentioned, or the Cartagena Declaration, to better protect those fleeing the impacts of climate change that amount to events seriously disturbing public order. So we have all of these tools at our disposal that we should be using. Um, In the United States, we have the tool of the Temporary Protected Status Authority that we can consider expanding, how we use that authority to improve protection from removal to countries suffering environmental disasters related to climate change. So all these existing instruments to protect displaced individuals in the context of climate change are useful, but limited in scope. And given the the growing displacement trends, um, it's very important to expand access to protection. It's it's vital really. Um, And so in addition to using the existing frameworks, we need to consider ways to supplement the current protection regime with new complementary
0: legal pathways. Over. Thanks, Nicole. That's <clears throat> that's very encouraging to hear, particularly from a, a country like the United States, which historically has been so strong on refugee protection and, and resettlement. Um, you know, particularly. Le- historically leading the way on on resettlement. Um, Rabab, if I could turn to you now, your involvement with these issues goes back a long way. And when we first met in Dhaka in 2010, you were heading up IOM's regional office and had just overseen the publication of an excellent report examining the nexus of environment, climate change and migration in, in Bangladesh. As you noted in that report, although Bangladesh is highly exposed to sudden onset extreme weather events like cyclones and floods, as well as slow onset processes like changing rainfall patterns and saltwater intrusion, um, Bangladesh, and in a quote, Bangladesh is in a position to respond proactively to minimize the risks and maximize the benefits of environmental migration and has many good practices to share. So I wondered, what are some of these practices from which other countries could learn, um, and potentially are there even more good practices in the intervening decade?
3: Thank you, thank you very much, uh, Jane, for your kind words, and uh, I thank you also for inviting me. Uh, this uh, this uh, discussion so far has been uh, extremely uh, extremely uh, good. And excellent presentations also from the previous speakers. Indeed, Jane, my involvement uh, with this debate is for more than a decade now, both due to my association with the government of Bangladesh as well as uh, during my time uh, with IOM. And the IPCC's uh, 2007 assessment report was one of the first intergovernmental reports to put a sharp spotlight on climate change, And that sort of triggered and encouraged many more empirical research on this topic. And then we have seen its integration in the 2030 agenda in Paris, in Paris, and other intergovernmental organizations. The nexus of environment, climate change, and human displacement is now fairly well recognized. Yet, we seriously lag behind in translating our shared political commitments into transactionable agendas on the ground. We are still sort of struggling in finding um, an accepted definition, as the previous speakers um, mentioned about. And uh, this is all happening even when we know that climate displacements, millions are actually being displaced because of weather related hazards. According to IDMC, more than 98% of the more than 30 million uh, new displacements that took place in 2020 was because of as a result of weather related displacements. And uh, COVID 19 may have further exacerbated the situation, especially uh, playing on the pre existing vulnerabilities. As the head of the IOM's regional office in Dhaka, I was closely involved in the publication of a comprehensive report in 2010, as you mentioned, Jane, to facilitate precisely that—to have a multi-stakeholder engagement on this issue because there was a clear lack of understanding on that. I also co-authored in uh, in 2014 an article on this topic, highlighting in particular the vulnerabilities of low-lying coastal and small island states. Uh, we made a strong pitch there for a normative uh, framework to just this issue. I remember when we were launching that paper, we also had a colleague from UNHCR there. And I asked how UNHCR is going to look into the gap that exists now in the um, in the Refugee uh, Convention and the protocol because uh, the, this population is not covered there. And that gap still remains. And in that context, Nicole, we are clearly looking forward to the report commissioned by President Biden because I think you mentioned there that we're going to look into Definitional issues there. Coming back to the first publication, our efforts then, given the lack of understanding and skepticism, was to help the government to take an evidence-based and informed position on this phenomenon which is happening. Eventually, Bangladesh would take a leading role to shape this debate globally. Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina, my prime minister, was uh, among the one of the first global leaders to raise this issue with a sense of urgency in the UN Gender Assembly. In two, September, 2009, she called upon world leaders to consider adopting a legal regime under the UNF UNFCCC for tackling this problem. And it is from that principal position that Bangladesh supported the creation of the Warsaw International Mechanism for Loss and Damage and the Nansen Initiative as well. And you're right, Jane, uh, as a climate vulnerable country where climate displacement is real, Uh, Bangladesh has important um, experience, ideas, and expertise with other countries facing similar challenges. Let me uh, share two specific thoughts in this regard. First, uh, as the current president of the 48-member Climate Vulnerability Forum, my Prime Minister announced the Mujib Climate Resilient Prosperity Plan, decade 2030. From a position of this is a a shift in our uh, 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 in our uh, approach to addressing this problem. From a position of vulnerability, this plan actually aims to build resilience and capacity, and eventually that would lead to prosperity. So moving away essentially from a victim-centric approach to a proactive and contributory approach, a vision under which we will strive to enhance resilience, grow our economy, create jobs and expand opportunities, using climate action on climate change as a catalyst. So this is quite quite a, a transformative sort of agenda and plan that we have. And we are encouraging and uh, supporting other uh, Climate Vulnerable Forum countries to develop their own prosperity plans. We can do this on our own, uh, but international climate financing will certainly speed things along. Secondly, Bangladesh has developed of the most effective locally-led early warning systems and ev- evacuation program to tackle sudden onset events, such as cyclones the river erosion. Even during this pandemic we proved our resilience in tackling the super cyclone. Come from. And we have launched a comprehensive 82-year delta plan 2100 to adapt to the slow onset of climate change because this is something which is happening in my country already. We are investing in rehabilitation projects and risk-informed investment in adaptation and resilience building and so on. We are ready to share our experience um, uh, uh, living in the largest delta of the world and tackling both current and future challenges with other vulnerable countries. To sum it up, Jane, our approach has always been to minimize the risks at the source. And this is, I believe, what I told you back in 2010 also. And we have important lessons and experiences to share in this regard, in seeking locally led solutions, which includes, among others, creating opportunities for alternative sustainable livelihoods with a view to prevent or minimize population displacement because if there's unplanned erratic population displacement that is going to create even more problem in the new area where the people are going to go so the, because we have a huge population the idea is to see how we can actually minimize the risk to in the first place to prevent population displacement. It's not easy, but we are. We have good experience. I think we have been able to put to rest some of the very dire predictions that were there regarding very erratic uh, uh, population displacement that will be taking place in Bangladesh. Thank you, I think I'll rest it there.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Rabab. And I, you know, I think um, perhaps if you could just answer this in a, in a quick sentence, if that's possible, before we turn to some of those local initiatives on the ground with, with Francis. Do, I mean, do you feel that Bangladesh's perspective is being heard now and, and, and being um, you know followed in international fora?
3: Yeah. No, thank you very much, Jane. It's not going to be a very uh, short answer because I think I have some information to share and I think it's important uh, for, for you to know. Uh, like I said, you know, this has been very much high on the agenda. Prime Minister brought it to the um, uh, UN General Assembly, asked for a legal regime, I know Andrew is looking at me, but you know, asking for a legal regime to ensure the social, cultural and economic rehabilitation of environmental degradation and climate change. So that was done. In keeping with this position, we placed climate change high on our domestic and foreign policy agendas. As a leading global voice on climate change, we pushed for the inclusion of this issue in all major UN frameworks, agendas, and compacts. We joined other partners to ensure its place in the 2030 agenda and the Sendai framework for disaster-based Reduction. And I believe our deep engagement, and this is, I think, where it was heard, our deep engagement with all stakeholders facilitated the recognition of this phenomenon by the Global Compact for Migration and the Global Compact on Refugees. And most recently, last week, we actively contributed to the creation of a mandate, a new mandate in the Human Rights Council, a special rapporteur on the promotion and protection of human rights in the context of climate change. So we are are continuing our efforts. Having said that, we recognize that much more still remains to be done in uh, to reach global common understanding and agreement on this issue, both from the political and legal perspectives. Besides, and I think this is very important for, uh, I think the others to listen to, besides the formal track of discussions and debates, we have also been active in other informal platforms, which are now quite the vogue here in the UN to raise awareness and understanding on this subject. In New York, for instance, we have been active members of the group of friends on climate change. So there is a group of friends on climate change, group of friends on migration. So all these topics do come up there group of friends on climate change and security, group of friends on DRR. And these friends groups have been playing an important role. These are all member states sitting there essentially in addressing the different dimensions of climate change and in turn trying to find a way to find consensus and programmatic interventions. In Geneva, for instance, we are active in the group of friends on EDD, okay? There is certainly much more to be done uh, as climate-induced displacements continue to remain alarmingly high. Uh, The upcoming uh, COP26, uh, we believe, will be a good opportunity to revisit uh, this issue and try to reach a clear understanding and consensus. I think both the previous speakers actually um, um, referred to that. And I think it's very, very important to have a clear understanding and consensus because if we are to have a coherent, effective, and collaborative mechanism, And uh, this will be high on Bangladesh's agenda also at COP22. Can I just highlight two, two priorities, Jane, in this regard? First, we will continue for Bangladesh. We'll continue to invest in efforts to create necessary political willingness and momentum to address this issue adequately in the context of multilateral cooperation. And secondly, we will continue to highlight the need for adequate resources and technology support uh, from the major economies. And I think that will be very important if you have to take preventive actions, especially from G7, G20 for the countries most affected by this phenomenon. My prime minister was, uh, took part in a high level closed door meeting of uh, on climate that was convened by the Secretary General and Prime Minister Boris uh, Johnson on the sidelines on the first day actually before uh, of the high level week in the GA. And these are many of the issues that we certainly raised, uh, and we intend to take them also to COP26.
0: Thank you. I'll rest it there. Thank you so much. Well, I mean, Francis, if I can now turn to you, um, you're working directly with Pacific communities uh, affected by the impacts of disasters, who are not only concerned with the here and now, but with the longer term consequences of climate change, including their ability to remain in their homes. So I wondered, in your advocacy, how do you frame the issues so that decision makers do sit up and take notice, while also being sensitive to the concerns and suggestions of those on the ground?
4: Thank you, Jane. Um, And thank you to all the previous presenters in the context that they shared, um, as it reflects or very important to the engagement of communities. Our realities in the Pacific, I would say, is framed, um, uh, frames our advocacy and messaging, which is shared from communities through different platforms, but also reaches the the decision-making level. And I would like to share um, in this space that there are two specific contexts that are often um, core of our advocacy or messaging. One is the survival of our people and the second is the ability to continue living on the land of our ancestors. I think these are really um, uh, two core um, uh, messaging that often comes in our advocacy works because it brings out the urgency of the issue and prompts uh, our demands for commitments and actions from everyone, the government, civil society organizations, private sectors, uh, communities of faith, women, children, persons living with disability as well. Now, as Andrew had mentioned earlier, here in the Pacific, climate change is not a standalone issue. Uh, It's linked and exacerbates impacts on other issues like food security, health, disasters, uh, climate-induced relocation or displacement. Even organizations are already forecasting conflicts because people will have to move and due and to land issues. Um, and so all this encompasses this context of the framing of survival. If we were to take the second uh, point that I raised earlier and the ability to continue living on the uh, land that our ancestors had given us, you want to understand not only from the Pacific but also indigenous communities, the. The connections we have you know with our with our environment our relational uh, indigenous relational with our environment um, this is probably where most of our pacific um, cso's or uh, advocacy messaging is often focused around non-economic loss and damage how do you um, put a value to our identity or culture and tradition when we lose this and when we're thinking about migrating or relocating how do we context? How are these context or concept um, addressed in the in the in the relocation uh, planning? So this pushes us, um, I guess, the awareness of, of uh, uh, survival and the ability to live on this on the land that has um, been given to us by ancestors very key to our advocacy because it it pulls all our um, ad, uh, awareness and advocacy together specific communities. Eh? Um, if um, a, a padre uh, a pastor often says who's so from Tuvalu if Tuvalu sings, the world you know will sink afterwards. If we save Tuvalu we'll save the rest of the world. Um, so uh, that's probably where the framing of our boxian and messaging is often come from.
0: And thanks Francis I mean how you know to, how much do international discussions at the UN matter um, in terms of, of your advocacy and and, you know how have past experiences at COP meetings affected your strategy?
4: Discussions at the UN and COP meetings are just as important as national and regional meetings. I I think they, they play a very key part to our work plan or our annual events. I guess these are important because uh, the platforms, um, an opportunity for the Pacific uh, communities or region to share uh, our realities, our stories and advocacy from our communities, but at the same time, listen and learn from other communities and actions happening in other regions, you know, share best practices and solutions. And this shared spaces. you know reflects our global effort you know to change our lifestyle you know from one that is um, uh, looking at um, you know development more at the expense of our environment to one that recognizes the importance of our stewardship role to or custodians to mother planet another issue is Because we're talking about, um, you know, Pacific people attending COP meetings or UN meetings, getting Pacific people across to these meetings um, at the time zone difference and, you know, the cost of, you know, traveling across. Um, And we also know that the limitation of... uh, people that we can take across to attend this meeting, to, you know, to cover different sessions. I think this is where the collaboration of Pacific Island countries, the role of Pacific civil society organization and other networks attending this event is important because we are able to, to support each other where and when we can, but at the same time amplify now different platforms the demands from the Pacific. I would like to recall in at the COP 23, I'm not sure whether this happens often, when the different groups—you uh, know, the women, the youth, Indigenous network, faith communities—were to present their, or their statements or position paper. It was late in the evening. You know, we were speaking to more empty chairs than official delegations who need to hear the voices of uh, the different representations. So, I believe if the UN um, space or the COP space are serious about these talks. The gender must accommodate the voices of communities who will be represented in these spaces. Maybe the time, you know, for for these um, uh, position papers or uh, uh, to be shared, is very relevant, um, and and it is important that we that the the negotiators or our governments hear the voices of the uh, of these people, um, because they are going to speak the realities from their different contexts. That will shape you know, the overall um, policies or statements coming out uh, and actions to be taken coming out from these different meetings.
0: Thanks, Francis. I think those are extremely important points and, and um You know, I think on the one hand, working virtually might have been able to address some of those issues about cost and distance. And yet, on the other hand, we know that virtual ways of working uh, bring their own challenges and and problems. We've we've got another round of questions, but I'm also very mindful of the time. So what I'm going to do is ask each of our panelists to keep their answers short. And to the extent I can, I will try and integrate uh, some questions that we've received um, through the Q&A function. Andrew, if I can go back to you, could you just tell us um, what UNHCR is doing on the ground or operationally when it comes to people who are at risk of or already displaced in these circumstances? No,
1: no, Thanks it's sort of the response can sort of be helped by what everyone else has been saying and I think also what Nicole had said was that um, the inclusion of IDPs uh, in development um, activities or solutions is also super important because people displaced by disasters are internally displaced first inside the country and so um, and what we're seeing across the world is that there is a lack of emphasis or a lack of um, value given to uh, peaceful peaceful coexistence. And what is happening is people were, I think are looking at the wrong things. They're looking at reacting to events rather than seeing how we can better anticipate. Uh, so again, I, I just came back from looking at the situation on the uh, Mali-Mauritanian border. We're having like, obviously huge uh, population movements within the Sahel, but, that, but a lot of those population movements are difficult to attribute specifically to one one area. And I'll I'll just give you an example rather than sort of going into too much about what UNHCR is doing, UNHCR is doing a lot. We got hundreds of officers, all hundreds of countries, but I think it's more important to focus on the human human element there. There There was a population of fisher folk who were in Mali and they were surviving on a lake, the lake dried up. They moved to another lake in Mali, it dried up. They moved to another area where they were chased out by jihadists. They moved to the border with Mauritania, but they couldn't survive in the border and they had to cross the border into Mauritania. So then they've moved into a lake area, a swamp area where they're fishing, but now they're in conflict with local herders. So this is the dynamics that is crossing. Nothing is simple anymore. These, These people would traditionally move across the region because of that's how they lived. Like mobility was their life. But in many places, that mobility and sense of how life was in the past has been jeopardised and so having the voices of people to explain what's going on is super important this is what why it's so important to have francis and the ambassador talking about the actual situation on the ground so we we're adapting um, we've got tens of millions of refugees but if we don't be more proactive in addressing the root causes and being much more sophisticated in understanding the dynamics of why people are moving then we're always going to be reacting and we can't do that. We have to be addressing the vulnerability at, at the root. Over.
0: Thanks Andrew. Look, just a, a quick question that came through on the chat, and I just wonder if you might have a, a you know, a response. Um, the UN Human Rights Council early this month oh. uh, recognised access to a healthy and sustainable environment really? as a universal right. I mean, do you think that's going to have any implications for what we're discussing today?
1: Um, well, not not immediately. But it will have um, may influence um, national adjudication decisions, and so that could have a um, an impact on um, case law as we move forward. As as you know this better than what what I do. Um, so in many aspects, when you start looking at um, like national like in national refugee law, that that thing is not going to move. Like that is there. But where, where you're likely to get much more flexibility in interpreting the rights of individuals impacted by climate change, and what we're not talking about enough is environmental degradation, then um, that's probably all national decisions, jurisprudence is likely to be much more flexible in deciding that. So that will that's where that will impact them, um, in a much more, hopefully, progressive way. Thanks. Thanks.
0: Um, Nicole, if I could turn back to you now. As a national policymaker, um, you have to think carefully about what it means to implement solutions in practice. So can you speak briefly to the sorts of political or pragmatic considerations that you need to take into account when making recommendations to government? And, you know, are there gaps between what you feel that advocates or scholars may be uh, asking for uh, versus what you can deliver in practice?
2: Sure, thank you. So, um... You know, we have to recognize that migration is a form of adaptation. It's an essential response in some cases to climate threats, uh, to livelihoods and well being. And we need to manage it carefully so that it is safe, orderly, and humane. Um, in terms of political and pragmatic considerations, I would just cite three very quickly. Um, we should not be viewing increasing migration and displacement trends as a security threat. Um, Andrew mentioned this earlier, but, um, you know, there's discussion about climate change, exacerbating resource scarcity that drives conflict and displacement, empirical studies looking at this have failed to produce consistent evidence for a causal connection between migration and subsequent conflict. So really we're not talking about migration becoming a cause of instability, but we see in many places xenophobia and inflammatory political rhetoric aggravating tensions. And so we want to try to avoid that or mitigate that. Um, A second point is that, you know, we have to assure equity and inclusion in preparing and responding to climate change impacts on migration. Um, These equity and inclusion are essential to effective policy and program development. We see the intersection of particular vulnerabilities exacerbated exacerbated by displacement, such as gender-based violence with vulnerabilities exacerbated by the impact of climate change like um, indigenous land rights or lack of mobility for persons with disabilities. So we have to take these into account and we have to consult affected communities as Francis so uh, graciously said. Um, And then third, I would say that any consideration of new legal pathways to protection for individuals fleeing the impacts of climate change, it will need to take into account the broader immigration context Um, In our consultations with external stakeholders, the US government heard some advocates asking for a new climate specific category for resettlement. And then we heard other advocates fearing that a new category for resettlement would take away precious resettlement slots from refugees under the convention definition who are in dire need of that solution. So we have to take a, a step back and look at the broader immigration context when we think about these issues.
0: And, and on that, Nicole, a question came in um, through the, the chat. How would temporary protected status in the US address the permanency of displacement in the context of climate change?
2: Uh, it's a great question. I think um, you know, the, the statute, as it's written in the United States, does not um, do that right now. So right now, uh, there is no p- pathway to a permanent legal status in the United States under the TPS authority. Um, and I think that's a, a clear gap um, in terms of um, providing uh, protection for those who will not be able to return uh, because the impacts of climate change are, are permanent. Um, and so that's, that's something that would require a legislative fix. Um, and in the meantime, we can think about uh, other potential mechanisms. Um, there are other immigration pathways that could be used uh, in particular cases. So that that's, that's where we are with, with TPS, at least for the moment.
0: Thanks, that's really helpful. Um, Rabab. if I could just turn back to you, in your current role at the UN in New York, how much does the displacement and migration angle feature in discussions? And, and also how important are regional groupings of states or other strategic configurations in pushing for action on climate change and mobility?
3: Thank you, Jane. And my answer is not going to be too short. I'd like to reflect a little bit about what has been achieved, a little bit on this subject already in the UN. For instance, you know, um, from the very beginning, you know, we have uh, we have highlighted uh, uh, the need for finding a political consensus. That was very important, especially when you are in an intergovernmental process. We just heard both Nicole and Andrew highlight uh, the definitional gaps, or the legal gaps that still exist. So we have to find political consensus, also addressing the legal gap, also trying to establish the development nexus uh, of climate-induced disasters, that includes climate displacement. And I believe our collaborative efforts with other partners culminated in the adoption of the Nanci Initiative Protection Agenda, which remains in 2015 by 109 countries. So that means a sort of a pseudo protection framework for us in, 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 in addressing this issue. And uh, then for for further advance the work of this initiative, we partnered with Germany uh, in 2016 at the World Humanitarian Summit uh, to launch the platform on disaster displacement. And I I believe the PDD still remains a good example of effective partnership across regions to place climate migration issue high on the multilateral agenda. And uh, very quickly, uh, if I may say that, we feel that the debate on climate-induced displacement is still evolving. Uh, I think it starts even in the context of finding an acceptable definition. If you if put climate and migration, both two very divisive, politically sensitive issues in one sentence, I think immediately it becomes a non-starter at many points. But you know, mentioned migration is sensitive as opposed to displacement. So, you know consequently i think the legal gap also creates the protection gap so these are these are these are the challenges that we face but as i had mentioned you know there are different forums besides the more formal intergovernmental processes where we have been trying to trying to have dialogues and discourses to find an understanding and some common grounds on where we can work together and um, uh, Nicole mentioned another very important issue, and that is about uh, migration should not be seen as a security threat. Sometimes know there's a growing sort of discussion now on migration, climate security. How climate can be inducing um, a triggering displacement, and that is leading to uh, security uh, risks. And I think that over securitization of the issue can also uh, be uh, a problematic area where we can find consensus, but this is also a very real issue in some regions. So this is going on. There is no common uh, group, uh, regional group position uh, as such uh, on, on the issue of climate and displacement. But as I said, you know we have been able to make some progress. This is increasingly being discussed even, I mean, climate and security is being discussed uh, in, the, in the security council or even in the Peacebuilding Commission's debates, uh, uh, and especially in the context of climate displacement, or even when we hear about the new mandate uh, of the Human Rights Council on Climate Change and Human Rights. I'll just mention, uh, and I think this will give you an idea about where things stand. Last Friday, we had an informal intergovernmental dialogue on this issue, uh, more climate change in the humanitarian context, uh, which was convened by the president of the and I'll share. I will share two major takeaways from that meeting, and I think that will give you an idea about where things stand in the intergovernmental larger process. First, the debate on climate displacement uh, encompasses multidimensional issues, and this includes uh, pertaining to development, uh, humanitarian, security, human rights, and legal domains. And there are there is also gaps in understanding among different actors within the UN system. As well as among member states on this subject. For instance, while humanitarian actors look into this issue with short term perspectives, the development actors essentially have long term views. And of course, there are competing sort of interests vis a vis resources and mandates. Then, of course, when the security actors come into play, they see it from the security lens, which can again, like I said, um, potentially over securitize the uh, entire debate. And secondly, uh, given, uh, and this is again another takeaway from the debate, I mean, this was at a high level that we had last week, given the multidimensional aspect of this issue and the high political sensitivity, we would need an incremental evidence-based approach. And uh, we need to have more such you know, multi-stakeholder dialogues, such as the one that we're even having now uh, to, uh, to bring in more synergies among the different actors, uh, but very, very important to bridge the gaps. In our understanding in trying to actually even find the common understanding on definition of what we what we mean by that so in the UN this is an ongoing debate at different levels and at different dimensions but I wouldn't say that we have uh, yet a very common um, uh, position on this matter from a climate vulnerable country our, our stakes are different from another country which is um, um, you know a source and uh, a destination country or a developed country which is giving the resources, I think there are different uh, sort of views. And I think that
0: differences also exist within the different UN agencies and players. Thank you for that really comprehensive um, explanation. And, and I think it does you know give us a, a good insight into some of the, the challenges that, that exist. Uh, if Francis, if I can come back to you now, what do you feel that affected communities need to be able to? Or need? Um, sorry. What do affected communities need to be able to do to retain their agency and make real choices about whether or not they want to stay or go? Hmm.
4: To go or not to go. That as a, that is a very important question. I guess in our accompaniment work with the pacific conference of churches an important factor that we've continued to recognize is the sharing of the information to the communities um, the discussion on the relocation or um, may be sensitive especially to when we are um, when the subject is about leaving their homes you know um, but we feel we must still talk about this issue. It is very important to allow the spaces for communities to like dialogue and find ways um, to move forward together or make a decision. And so, um, you know, the the free, prior, informed consent of communities—that eh, they are making decisions, they are making informed decision based on the knowledge that they, they are provided, or based on the dialogue that they've had uh, with, the, with the different stakeholders. That has been one of the key findings from our uh, accompaniment work with with most of the communities or some of the communities that work with uh, here in the the region. But in talking about this, we've also realized that we cannot leave anyone behind. There are those in the communities that may choose not to go. Um, And for our work, um, it is looking at ways that we continue to support those who choose to stay, um, and sustain, you know, the uh, the environment that they choose to live in. Um, there has been already, there's been discussions around two aspects of what would a theology of hope in the, you know, in the church context would look like, a theology of hope for those relocating and a theology of hospitality, how do receiving communities receive uh, relocating communities? eh? And in the same context of the theology of hope, how do we still provide hope to those who choose not to relocate? And given that the uh, faith communities is uh, is large here in the Pacific region, the, the Christian community, um, that has been one of the key um, challenges for us in accommodating uh, the concerns or the uh, those who may choose not to stay here, that their voices are also represented um, in the in the Talanoa in the dialogue. But we've also, um, you know, while moving into into this in this work, I believe something like the planned relocation guideline that the Fiji government has uh, uh, put together, at least. Uh, is a starting uh, guide for the different stakeholders, um, the ministry, the government ministry to come together and respond to this very sensitive and complex issue of moving. Um, You know, it it guides our collective action. Uh, At the same time, we're learning and improving uh, based on the different cases, but at the same time. as stated specifically in the the Fiji uh, Plan Relocation Guideline, the community is centred. Uh, they must be informed uh, of any um, you know existing frameworks, uh, guidelines, and policies, um, and they are the drivers, um, you know, or designers of the, the the relocation processes. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Look, a question came through which I don't expect you to answer necessarily but perhaps I can use it in in kind of framing my final question to you and also to indicate that a session this time tomorrow will look at this in more detail and that was about Vanuatu's campaign seeking an advisory opinion before the International Court of Justice on human rights and climate change and the question was to what extent could climate related mobility be raised in that Um, as I said tomorrow this time somebody will be addressing that um, head on but you know reflecting on that and on that campaign um francis just to conclude you know are there effective local strategies and practices that are making a difference already among pacific communities
4: yes there are um the i think the movement of young people women um, and civil society organizations supporting our government in this in this work is one thing that has you know, shifted the work in the region, shifted the focus for us to be more um, serious about this issue. But not only that, but what other method, what other avenue can we take this conversation to so that our voices or our stories, realities from the Pacific region, not only the, re- the Pacific, but other uh, vulnerable communities. Um, are serious, you know, are, be, are being taken seriously, and are validated in the conversation uh, in, in the political phases. Um, one of the concepts I believe, when the when the Fiji government, be, you know, took up the presidency of COP in uh, 2017, introduced the talent or concept. I guess that that concept is important for us because. It's uh, an ongoing um, space in the communities where um, you know the different groups are coming together—men, women, children, young people. They are able to talk about the issue at, at um, you know at present, and finding ways to provide solutions to this. The tambu concept—you know, reviving tambu practices where we are protecting breeding areas, where we are um, are able to sustain whatever is left in our environment, whatever we can uh, continue to breed um, during different season. And there are already uh, projects in you know, planting mangroves, uh, not only in Fiji, but around the region, maybe other region as well to protect their shorelines. Um, communities coming together, young people coming together to um, revive traditional knowledge, um, sustainable sea transportation, um, you know, using the traditional uh, voyage, traditional canoes, so that we start to limit our carbon emission. Even though we we know we significantly uh, emit, you know, uh, uh, insignificant amount of greenhouse gases, we still we still feel we we'll, while we're at the forefront of this um, the climate change, we still need to come up with uh, ways that we can uh, uh, respond or adapt and mitigate this this, uh, uh, climate change issues. But at the same time, in terms of food security, how do we grow our own backyard um, gardens? How do we promote uh, uh, sustainable, Uh, food um, agriculture practices, uh, you know, that not only protects our our land, but at the same time, we're able to learn, we're able to infuse traditional knowledge into this, given that we already have existing traditional calendars of uh, of farming, um, agriculture calendars, so these are already, um, you know, existing um, uh, local strategies and practices, but at the same time, we we do not want to drive the attention away from countries committing to reducing their carbon uh, emission targets. That despite our solution, that despite what we are trying to find, best practices and solution, even relocation, if that's the the last option to adaptation, we still have a responsibility to reduce our carbon emission, um, not only for the Pacific, but for the rest
0: of the world. Thank you, Francis. I don't think I can add a concluding line to, that, that can express things any more power, powerfully than you, you just have. And I would like to thank you and our, our other panelists this morning for your enormous expertise, reflections, and knowledge. I, I think it's been a, an incredibly rich discussion and one that has set the tone very well for, for the rest of the conference to come. Um, thank you to the thank you to the audience as well for your engagement, your questions and your interest. And of course, to our sponsors, uh, Slayton and Gordon, the sponsor of our opening panel and our premier sponsor, UNHCR. This session will be followed in just a few moments by a breakout session, uh, which is a conversation between me and Mary Ann Lockrey about how things have changed in this field of, of climate change disasters and mobility over the last decade or so since we've been involved. It'll take place on Zoom meetings and I invite you to join us through the link in the chat function or through the event hub that you access via your ticket. Thank you so much for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you at other sessions of our conference. Thank you, and goodbye.